0: Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd.
1: And I'm Katie Reif.
0: Today we're going to be talking about Doolittle, that's the new live-action reboot with Robert Downey Jr. And also 1917, that's Sam Mendes' Oscar-nominated World War I movie.
1: Welcome to Film Club. So
0: we're definitely living in an era of, of studio filmmaking where intellectual property is king.
1: Yes, the barrel is being scraped That's right. <laughs> many, many <Yeah>. times over. <laughs> yeah.
0: The studios are sort of looking for any dormant property that they can turn into a new franchise, mm-hmm. and they're going this time to the well of Doctor Doolittle. That is Hugh Lofting's classic family-friendly character. He's a doctor who can, who has the magical power to speak to animals. Mm-hmm. His first big screen appearance was in the 1967 musical starring Rex Harrison.
1: A disastrous musical, right? Yes, it a was. A, it was
0: a huge flop for the studio, lost them a, a good amount of money. I mean, in 1967 terms anyway, probably, yeah. probably $10 million or something, right. which is now nothing, okay. but in 1967 Well, you know, lot. they
1: weren't working with not everything on a $400 million budget. The Correct. stakes were lower. Nothing then. did, in fact. Yeah. 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 True. Yeah.
0: The, not a hit at the time, but right. it was still managed to get a Best Picture nomination mm-hmm. um, and had a, a big enough cultural footprint that they revived it in 1998 with Eddie Murphy. That film was successful. It mm-hmm. spawned a sequel, and as, as I learned through doing a little research today, three direct-to-video uh, follow-ups that do not feature Eddie Murphy, but right. follow his daughter's character.
1: Wow, it's interesting that you mention that because those were two big transition periods. Like 1967, Mm -hmm. the classic studio system was dying. Yes, And I think it's very um, telling that the Oscars nominated for Best Picture anyway, in light of yesterday's Oscar nomination. Same old, same old, right? And then uh, Eddie Murphy's Dr. Doolittle, that's when he was transitioning into doing pretty much exclusively family films. So yeah, Dr. Doolittle is a character that, perhaps foretells doom <laughs> before <laughs> the actor who plays <replaced> him. <laughs> well, I I,
0: I I think Robert Downey Jr. is probably hoping that that's not the case. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> of course, yeah. But
0: this is a period of transition for him as well. Mm-hmm. He's officially done playing Tony Stark for for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's still a huge movie star. I remember talking with you about this before we saw this film saying like, why is Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, doing this film? Like, what is he getting out of this? It. I had read something that this was a passion project for his. Really? Uh, of his, yeah. I understand um, the
1: appeal of the character, especially for children, because, you know, a lot of children are really into animals, and it's kind of the ultimate fantasy to be able to talk yeah. to them. Yep. But so if I had to put money on it, I would have said he would have gone back to Oscar bait, but...
0: Supposedly, I've, I've also read that he basically is done with indie filmmaking as mm. well, that he said something like, I don't want to do those kind of films anymore. Mm. He is, I mean, he's a movie star, and I think at a certain point, some movie stars get into that line of work and get into that phase in their career, and that's all they want to do anymore.
1: You know, it's you know? funny you bring that up because it reminds me of what this performance reminded me of the most, which was Johnny Depp mm-hmm. and Pirates of the Caribbean as Jack Sparrow. Johnny Depp is another actor who, you yeah. know, if he doesn't have six assistants, he's not going to do it right, exactly. <laughs> anymore.
0: Yep, and- Yeah, he made that same transition where mm-hmm. he was he was largely in, in small films, and now, Depp. You know, you won't catch Depp outside of a, no. of a blockbuster at this point. No, I no, guess no. unless Kevin Smith is directing
1: it. So, <laughs> and even and his, and his daughter's in it as well. Yes, <laughs> yes. or his daughter. Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, Downey plays Dr. Doolittle, the mm-hmm. famous doctor who can speak to animals. Unlike the Murphy films, which set the story in contemporary times, this one goes back to the 1800s. This incarnation of the story, which is based on the second book in Hugh Lofting's. Source material: his, his series of novels. I mm-hmm. believe it's the Voyages of Doctor Doolittle. Okay. He's basically a recluse. Um, right. He's living in this giant mansion with these animals. He's basically given up on the human species. Yeah,
1: he's in like he's in like a animal preserve that's somewhere in the country in Victorian England. It's mm-hmm. almost it's yeah. almost like a secret garden kind of thing where you don't yeah. know it's there unless you stumble on it. Totally.
0: Because these characters need a defining traumatic motivation. <laughs> uh, he's been given a wife who dies at sea, which mm-hmm. um, we Get learn. Good old dead wife. That's right.
1: Gotta love a dead wife.
0: <laughs> we learn that through, uh, I would say, the best moment of this entire film, which is an animated prologue that's actually quite beautiful. I kind of liked the, the, the animated the, the prologue. It's yeah. very nice. I was like, oh, this is a promising start. So good
1: to get your hopes up with the animated prologue. <laughs> that's right.
0: um, so his wife dies at sea, and he's now a recluse. He does not see humans anymore. Mm-hmm but through a series of, of, of events, uh, basically the Queen of England comes calling, she's very sick, he has to go on this adventure.
1: He's a vet though. I, that's one of my big questions. He's well, a veterinarian. Why Why is the Queen of England calling him in?
0: Well, I think he was a doctor before, this is
1: unclear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good answer. This is it's unclear. It's not explained. <laughs> um, um,
0: so he goes on an adventure, he brings along a lot of his sort his of nattering menagerie. Yeah. You know.
1: I've thought a fair amount about his performance in this film, and the best I can figure, because it's really just laden with tics. Yeah. It's just a lot of like snuffling and shuffling and kind of moving his head from side to side like a twitchy squirrel, and I think he's trying to give the impression of a human who spends a lot of time around animals and has forgotten how to be a human. Oh,
0: so he's antisocial. I, oh. yeah. Yeah. I, I, I found it kind of an incoherent characterization, to be honest.
1: Uh, it's extremely incoherent. Yeah. I think I think I'm stretching by putting that characterization up. Yeah. What on.
0: accent is he doing? Is it Scottish?
1: I uh, have part, supposedly he's Welsh.
0: Oh, he's Welsh.
1: I don't know oh. enough Welsh people to say whether That's the thing, a I don't know if that's not.
0: me not knowing that accent well enough yeah. to know if he's doing it well. Yeah. Or if, because nothing about his characterization struck me as particularly thought out, particularly no. uh, well formed, no. uh, particularly coherent. Um, he never really finds a character for Doolittle. I mean, when we meet him, he's supposed to be kind of a grump, you know? Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's, just, he's dealing with this um, grief.
1: doesn't like humans. Right. He just doesn't want to be around humans at all. He prefers right. the company of animals.
0: But Downey won't commit to that prickliness. Which is interesting because I feel like when playing Tony Stark, for example, mm-hmm. in his, his superstar role, he's more than willing to make Tony this, this somebody who's sometimes actively off-putting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like this this is a movie that uh, was not willing to embrace the idea that Dr. Doolittle could be kind of an asshole, you know? Right. Because, I mean, you talk about him, like, uh, lacking social skills because he doesn't talk to humans. I think that is a that is a coherent like, character choice that Mm -hmm. you could make, but the movie doesn't, it's not like the movie follows through on that. No. Once they're on the open sea, he's just kind of doing...
1: It's almost like he's high, and he's seeing things that other people aren't seeing, and it just kind of Just kind of moving his head around. And I, you know what, again, probably giving Doolittle too much credit here, but he hears things other people don't hear, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe there's something maybe. in there.
0: <laughs> the film uh, is populated by a number of, uh, has a very large voice cast, mm-hmm. a, a lot of famous actors coming in. Obligatory
1: and, and, celebrity yeah. an, animal voices, yeah. There's a lot of
0: comedians who are playing the the, the his various animal friends. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a certain, fl- I mean, uh, more than a certain, there is a real flop sweat quality to the comedy oh, in this film. Oh,
1: totally. It's very it, manic. It's stinks of punch up
0: yes well and there were, there were like there were a good apparently a good 21 days of reshoots on mm-hmm. this supposedly one of the notes they were getting from test audiences who didn't like the film uh, was that it wasn't funny enough okay and this definitely feels like a film that that every couple minutes is concerned that we're not laughing enough so yep. it's giving us a joke yep and a lot of it is really uh, really labored. There <laughs> was
1: know? exactly one joke in it that I thought was kind of cute. <laughs> well, what was that? It was, it's a sequence where Dr. Dolittle is uh, it's a man-eating tiger, and he uses a mirror, like a laser pointer. and the Oh, yeah, I laughed at that, too. Around.
0: That's an, that's animal-specific humor. Yeah, that's so an that's animal kind of funny, joke. Because yeah. you know? a lot of it's, them are point. just being, like, these nattering, you know, I mean, like, Camille Nanjiani like, is in it, and he's playing this ostrich, and um, I, I, I like... Kamail normally, and I did not enjoy his comic riffs in this film. I think the Pirates c- comparison is pretty, it, that's pretty apt, honestly. Mm-hmm. This felt like those movies. Um, Even the
1: production design yeah. had a lot of similarities. Well, there's a lot of it's movies. on the
0: sea. It's very busy. It's very loud. There's a lot of CGI in this film. Mm-hmm. Notably, the original Dr. Doolittle was one of the reasons it was such a disaster was that there were a lot of actual live animals oh, on set Oh, <laughs> uh, that would probably be an amusing set to, yeah, yeah, to witness. And yeah. this one they're all CGI creations and often looks like CGI creations. Like oh, the very CGI in this is very the inconsistent. CGI
1: is not very good in this movie. Right. And you know, um, post Planet of the Apes are really isn't an excuse to have right. animals that don't look like animals. I
0: guarantee this thing costs an insane amount of money, so if you're going to spend that kind of money, at least make the animals look right. Yeah. I will say I liked that they were a little more expressive than the than the animals in The Lion King.
1: <laughs> you know? Like, I'm really... <laughs> it's yeah. not a flattering comparison. It's not.
0: Um, <laughs> but uh, even the Pirates films, uh, as directed by Gore Verbinski, um, have a certain have a certain sort of mad dash yeah. uh, energy to them.
1: And the manic characterization makes a little more sense in yeah. the Pirates movies. For sure. So what you're saying, Dowd, is that the original Dr. Doolittle had animals pooping all over the floor, and this Dr. Doolittle has a lot of CGI animals making poop jokes.
0: <laughs> I'm not saying that, but I, I agree with <laughs>
1: Okay, so Alex, 1917. When the end of the year lists were coming out last year, it didn't seem like it was going to be a huge contender. But all of a sudden, after the Golden Globe, it's emerged as you know a hot film that everybody's talking about. It won best director and best motion picture drama at the Globes, and then it got ten Oscar nominations. Yep. Which, you know, it's I'm a little a little surprised to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, simply because it it wasn't really a film that was receiving a lot of attention from critics, though perhaps this is me being in my critical bubble.
0: (laughs) You know, it got good reviews, Mm -hmm. Um, not from me, mind (laughs) you, but from, uh, there were plenty of pretty glowing reviews. I think that it's been kind of overshadowed by a lot of this year's other yeah, major films wasn't
1: the buzziest title. At exactly. The end yeah, of the year last.
0: I do think that's also though because of the way that it was released. Mm-hmm. I think that the timing a little weird, where some of the reviews dropped right before Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. and then the movie didn't open it opened limited at Christmas. It just now opened wide in America. Yeah, that's
1: why we're talking about it this week. Totally, it's just now uh, opening wide. Yeah.
0: Yep. Uh, now I look at 1917 and I see a movie that, of course, the Academy is going to love mm-hmm. yes. because it's a film that advertises its craftsmanship. It advertises its prestige with every single moment. So. It's directed by Sam Mendes Mm -hmm. who has been kind of uh, in the Oscar club since his very first film which is American Beauty.
1: He's sort of a Christopher Nolan kind of guy. A certain type of cinephile just goes wild for his
0: (laughs) Well I think that he particularly with his last few films has actually kind of been emulating Christopher Nolan Mm -hmm. a little bit in some of his style. His first film was American Beauty which won Best Picture and also Best Director and since then he made uh, Revolutionary Road, Road to Perdition, some other movies not with Road in the title, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Jarhead and then he spent uh, a few years he made a couple of the James Bond films, um, which I actually think are some of his best work as a as a filmmaker. Particularly Skyfall, I think that is like unquestionably Sam Mendes' best movie. Well,
1: it would certainly give you experience in setting up a you know a big elaborate. Uh, yeah fight scenes or battle scenes, you know, in the case may be.
0: And Mendes has always been a guy who I think who, uh, a lot of his appeal is very cosmetic. Mm -hmm. He's somebody who has always marshaled the services of really good collaborators. Yeah. Um, American Beauty, he worked with legendary cinematographer Conrad Hall. Mm -hmm. He also, that was the first film he worked with uh, with Thomas Newman. Um, I've always kind of said that American Beauty is a film by... Conrad Hall and and Thomas Newman (laughs) as much as a film by Sam Mendes. Yeah, it's a little bit of a shade there, I
1: guess.
0: (laughs) He has impeccable taste in collaborators. Yeah, and and I think that's the case here as well.
1: Well, the great Roger Deakins did the cinematography and that's especially important here because this is a gimmick movie. This is a one-take movie, although I will maintain that even if you're not counting the invisible edits that are almost certainly in there, (laughs) there is one point in the middle of the film where the protagonist Blacks out and yeah. wakes up again. That's a cut.
0: Yeah, that's two shots. That's, that is... <laughs> that is A hard cut to black is the end of a shot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You cannot yeah. say it's
1: one take if it's got a hard cut to black. <laughs>
0: exactly, yeah. I will
1: maintain this. Yep.
0: <laughs> Deacon's a great cinematographer. He worked mm-hmm. with him on Skyfall as well, and mm-hmm. Skyfall is gorgeous. And his work on this is strong as well, though I do think he's working a little out of his wheelhouse. Mm. Deacon's has always been a guy who's, I think, is much about composition and texture and color. Yeah. This is more like something that Emmanuel Lubezki has, has gotten uh, has won several Oscars for doing, which mm-hmm. is these these sort of elaborate steady cam shots.
1: Yeah, and I've seen, you know, a little bit of behind the scenes footage and I will admit that some of the shots in the film are pretty impressive. Yeah. There's one where the protagonist is running out onto a field in the opposite direction of where a bunch of soldiers are charging out into battle. Mm-hmm. And the coordination of that shot that took a lot of planning and it had to have been very difficult to pull off and it looks really cool on the screen. But I kind of wonder what makes this more than just a very, very expensive sizzle reel for people that don't really need to be making sizzle reels because they're already very well established?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I don't think you can deny that the craftsmanship in this is... Top-notch. Totally impressive yeah. in terms of not just the cinematography, but in terms of how they're choreographing these yeah. shots. I mean, it takes an enormous amount of talent and effort and time mm-hmm. and patience to make a movie like this because you have to get it right. There, I mean, mm-hmm. even if it's not one or even two takes, it's a lot of them are these extended takes. It's long
1: takes, yeah, yeah where you're with a, lots of moving parts.
0: Very complicated setups. They're also integrating digital effects. There's mm-hmm. one, ama- really, one of the more amazing moments in the film, I think, is there's a scene where right. our two main characters are uh, basically in the remains of like a collapsed farmstead. right? And a dogfight starts happening in the sky above them. And their depth perception is such that they don't realize how close to danger they really mm. are when one of the planes comes down. And suddenly, something, a battle that appears to be happening very far away from them is suddenly right in right their there. face. Yeah. Right. And that's the kind of scene that requires uh, an enormous amount of uh, consideration in the staging and uh, in integration of visual effects. Yeah. So this is a thing that it's undeniably impressive that they pulled it off.
1: Right. You know, again, I just ha- kept having the same kind of thought over and over watching it being like, "Oh, well, that looks cool, but towards what end?" <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the issue is that it's not immersive. Right. I think that that's sort of the rationale for it's something like designed this.
1: Designed to be immersive, so I would be curious to hear your rationale as to why you didn't think it was so.
0: Well, so yeah, I mean, I think the idea is that when when there's no cuts, mm-hmm. the notion is that we are sharing the same physical and, by extension, psychological and maybe spiritual space as these characters. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea is that we are not. They, they don't have the privilege of a cut, so we don't get one either. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it's giving us a, a, a sort of a replication of what time might feel like for them. Mm-hmm. Which is all well and good. The problem is you start becoming acutely aware of what the camera is doing at every time. Yes. You can say that the editing in this is invisible, but the camera work is never invisible.
1: No, it's very obvious. And that's a great point because something that I I noticed throughout is they had these little details that are supposed to show war as hell, like piles of corpses and just, you know, blood and death and destruction. But it all passes by so quickly because the focus is always on the camera work. Yes. That is what you're supposed to be looking at. Yes.
0: I think that kind of hits it on the head is that... um, Um, something that, where the focus of this thing should maybe be on the plight of these characters, Mm -hmm. we are always hyper-focused on the filmmaking.
1: Well, tell, tell the folks about yeah, the plot of the characters it's real quick. A, uh, yeah. I mean, it's very, it's
0: very simple and, and <laughs> it says a lot about primal. the movie,
1: I think, that you can talk so much about it without well, talking sure. about the
0: plot. So as the title indicates, it's it's set in 1917. Right. Um, World War One. World War One on the Western Front. Mm-hmm. We're in uh, northern France. Um, the Germans appear to be in retreat, so we sort of open with a platoon of British soldiers, and two of these soldiers get yeah. conscripted to relay a message. Across no man's land, go a few miles, they, and, and they're on a very tight deadline because they have to stop a battle from happening right and what's happening is that aerial photography has revealed that the Germans though they appear to be in retreat are actually laying an ambush if this attack happens this planned attack at dawn happens it, they're it's basically walking into a slaughter. Yeah. So I will say that it's, it's interesting to see a war movie that is about the prevention of mm-hmm. a battle. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's new. And I will say this is not a war movie that goes heavy on battle sequences. A lot of it is about small crucibles that yeah. these characters are going through. You the know?
1: bigger stuff is on the periphery.
0: Right, yeah. yeah. It's all about will we set off this trip this, this trip mine. Yeah, in yeah. In this tunnel. Can I get through this barbed wire or something? And yeah. I like that aspect of it. I do.
1: There's a sequence early on that I thought was really interesting and very tense when the two uh, the two British soldiers have to pass through a tunnel that the Germans have yeah. laid with a bunch of booby traps. And that that was a, a small, like very tense moment, mm-hmm. you know? I think
0: Mendez has always uh, excelled at at suspense, actually. Mm-hmm. I think that's an underrated quality of, of, of his filmography. I think that it, Road to Perdition actually has a couple of very... Very suspenseful moments yeah, in it. It I, works I like as a that. thriller. Yeah. yeah. Um, and his Bond movies, I think, excel at that as well. Mm-hmm. The problem is that this thing wants to th- th- this thing is kind of a, a monument to its own self-importance.
1: Yeah. A lot of it. Absolutely. You know? um,
0: it wants us to constantly be gawking at it at its craft a- and to, to be saying essentially, yeah. look at what they accomplished. Yeah. The characters themselves are fairly thin. I admire that we don't have a to. A lot
1: of them come and go.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It, but even the two soldiers that we meet. And there is a certain integrity to that, because you're essentially looking at two people who, uh, who have basically just been reduced to a mission. Mm-hmm. You know? So there is an integrity to it, yeah. but they don't have a ton of dimension.
1: Well, let me ask you that in okay. relation to talking about a mission. I'm not a big player of video games, but okay. I know you are. Did this remind you of a World War One video game? Well, yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> it almost feels like levels at times. You know, yeah, you know, like, it does. You, know, you go and you, you talk to somebody and they give you a mission. And then you do the then, mission yeah. and then you talk
1: to somebody else and then you do another mission. And yeah. an
0: elaborate action scene ha- happens at some point. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it, it often resembles video games more than it does cinema to be honest.
1: Yeah, and just like for, you know, for a war film, you know, there are a lot of war films that have spectacular sequences in them, but if you put 1917 next to something like Apocalypse Now or Saving Private Ryan, yeah. it doesn't have anything to say about like the war or even the people that were fighting in it yeah. really. It's just look at these cool camera tricks we did. And yeah. it, it just really felt hollow to me.
0: I agree. I do think it's kind of a hollow exercise. Uh, it's a huge hit, apparently. <laughs> yes. um, it, it dethroned Star Wars this week. It did. Uh, the number one film in the country. Um, I The last time that, that something like that happened, I believe, was in 2014 with American Sniper. Mm-hmm. Um, Another war that? movie. Yeah, not, not a coincidence, mm-hmm. I don't think. Um, we as a country are... Now, sitting on the brink of another war, I do think that it says something culturally that um, the only movies for adults that can compete with something like Star Wars or the Marvel films are war movies.
1: Yeah. And you know, there's something to be said for that in the awards conversation, too, when you look at the relative, um, you know, uh, fates of this film versus a film like... The Little Women, for example, mm-hmm. it's not the only example, but it's another example of a movie that had the the hell directed out of it, but it's not uh, considered sort of important enough. I'm making air quotes if you're listening to the podcast. <laughs> it's a, the, the only types of stories that are considered like very serious and important and weighty are... Male violent stories, yeah. Yeah. and they ha- and only if it has a certain reverent tone to it, like totally, you know. I think that it's it does say a lot about the culture and what we what we consider you know to be worth this sort of effort that went into staging this entire film.
0: And I think, like a lot of war movies, this thing purports to be anti-war, mm-hmm. but ultimately, it's as interested in being a thrill ride as anything else. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, that's all for us for Film Club for this week. I'm Katie Reif. And I'm Alex Stapp. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back next week talking about this year's Oscar contenders. I'm excited.
0: (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Bye.
1: Bye.